All right, well, good evening. I am so glad that you are back, especially given uh, the person that spoke last week. I'm glad you came back anyway. That's very affirming. Thank you for coming back. Uh, my name is Eric Barton, and I am delighted to be with you this evening. Mark Brayton, the senior pastor of our Savior's Lutheran Church, the guy that I've kind of been partnering with to do all this, is not going to be with us this evening. He had this, you know... Uh, his son's getting married thing this weekend, and so he decided rather than be with us, he would go and be a part of his son's wedding. So we affirm that. We'll give him a pass. But I am delighted to be back with you. I wanted to draw your attention. When you leave this evening, you will receive one of these little flyers. This is an invitation to uh, join our friends from our Savior's Lutheran Church next, or actually in a week and a half, on Saturday the 28th on their uh, grounds on Kinsey Avenue, 4900 Kinsey Avenue, uh, between 4 o'clock and 9 p.m., they are going to be celebrating Oktoberfest. Now, look, we're a Bible church. We would do Oktoberfest, but, I mean, come on. We're a Bible church. <laughs> if you're going to have Oktoberfest, you kind of need some Lutherans to really <laughs> plow the field. So the Lutherans, our good friends at the Lutheran Church, are going to be having Oktoberfest. We really want you to come out. Father Josh Nye, who spoke on behalf of the Roman Catholic perspective, he and I agreed that we would meet there together and try to, like, protect one another. So we're going to be there together. I invite you to come as well. They will be handing out some of these flyers here as you depart momentarily. Now, this evening, um, I get the privilege and the honor, and it really is a delight. I get to introduce one of my close friends, Father Matt Bolter of Christ Episcopal Church, specifically he leads at the South Campus, and Matt has been a great friend. He's been a, uh, a bit of a theological sparring partner over the years, but more than that, candidly, he's been a confidant. I, I just love this guy. He loves him some Jesus, which I don't know of a higher compliment I could pay than that. This guy absolutely loves the Lord, and he just so happens to be brilliant. And so he's going to be speaking to us tonight and giving us a little bit of uh, his perspective on the Reformation from all of his learnings and all of his experience. So I'm delighted to welcome uh, Father Matt Bolter. If you'd please come and lead us this evening. Thanks, Matt. I'm going to try not to spill my coffee, well, my tea. Thank you, Alan, coming. We'll see what happens. Uh, may I open us in prayer? But I'm not going to open us in a prayer that comes out of my great depths of wisdom or spirituality. No. I'm going to open us in prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and I'll be talking about the Book of Common Prayer um, as we go. This is a prayer for the church. It's on page 816. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we pray for thy holy Catholic Church. <clears throat> Fill it with all truth, and all truth with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. 
where it is divided, reunite it for the sake of Jesus Christ, thy son, our savior. Amen. Great to be here. Um, I'm hoping to close with a similar prayer, but I'm worried I'm going to forget. So if someone would like to remind me that I'm going to close with a prayer similar to that one, that would be awesome. It is great to be here. Um, Last time I was here was at the Mockingbird Conference, uh, which was awesome. Hope that y'all will be there this next coming spring. And I'm delighted that I can actually see people uh, out there in the audience. Mockingbird, it was like I was looking at big bright lights, so this is great. Um, I want to start out like this, and Deacon Mark, uh, thanks for your help tonight. I understand that you're my slide guy, so if we could pull up that first slide, that'd be awesome. Yeah, okay, maybe the second slide. Um, yeah, and that's, can y'all see that? All right, that's, that's kind of spiffy. Um, actually, yeah, that, that's kind of an outline um, of what I'm going to do tonight. I guess I've got like an introduction and then like eight little points I would tell you that my, my uh, comments tonight are, they start out kind of boring, kind of dry, kind of like historical minutia, but, but it gets progressively more sexy, progressively more interesting. And, and I think that you'll see that. So, um, yeah, slicing and dicing the church historically, that's the first thing I want to talk about. It's pretty boring. Roman numeral two, two English forerunners of the Reformation. Because what I'm doing tonight is I'm speaking about the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century from an Anglican perspective. It's great to have Father Erlinson here as well. He should probably be on this stage instead of me. Uh, Roman numeral two is two English forerunners of the Reformation. Number three, I want to squelch a grievance. I noticed that Father Josh Nye who did a great job. Um, Everyone's done a great job. I listened to some of the talks on Tuesday night uh, on the interwebs, and everyone's done a really great job. And I like what Josh and I did. He sort of threw out an objection that a lot of people supposedly have of the Catholic Church, and he squelched it. I'm going to do that. Um, And and the grievance or the objection that I want to squelch ahead of time, it has to do with King Henry VIII. Roman numeral four. I want to talk about why does it matter that England is an Ireland uh, is an island. England is the situation in England in the 16th century is very different from Germany or France or Geneva or Switzerland. Uh, geography matters, and and Great Britain was an island, and that matters for how the Reformation went down in the Church of England. Uh, Roman numeral five. I want to talk about the original Brexit. Six, on babies and bathwater, going to try to talk about how the Church of England, I would argue, gave a high five to Martin Luther uh, and the other reformers, but did not throw the baby out with the bathwater. At least that's our perspective. Um, Roman numeral seven, I want to talk about the, uh, what's called the Elizabethan settlement, how after the break from Rome happened, um, we had a period, there was an initial period of whiplash and this crazy oscillation between hardcore Puritanism and then hardcore Catholicism. But then after that initial period of whiplash, there was a period of settlement during the reign of Queen Elizabeth. And I want to talk about that. And then eighth and lastly, what I really think. Um, I, I want to try to cut to the chase 
get down to brass tacks and tell you why I think this stuff matters. So that's kind of like my outline. If we could go to the next slide, Mark, that'd be great. I want to start out like this. Um, raise your hand if you've ever heard of Yaroslav or Jaroslav Pelikan, great church historian. I, I'm expecting some hands to go up right about now. Yaroslav Pelikan, uh, he said this. He said that the Church of England, and, and by the way, I'm here to represent Anglicanism, the Episcopal Church. I'm an Episcopal priest, is the, or at least the major, or at least an Anglican body here in North America. So I'm representing the Anglican tradition or the Anglican way as an Episcopal priest. And what Pelican says is this, the Anglican church or the church in England has the body of Rome, the mind of Calvin, and the heart of Luther. Now, I know Blaine Davis is here. Uh, is Father Josh Nye here tonight? Josh, it's great to see you. Last time I was with Josh was on my front porch about five years ago. It's wonderful to see you, Father. Um, and let's see, is, is Pastor Brayton here? No, he's not. Okay. Uh, what about uh, Ben Wheeler? Is Ben here? Is Ben here tonight? Okay, so Pelican says that, that, the, that Anglicanism has the body of Rome, the mind of Calvin, and the heart of Luther. This is very bad news for me because this means that basically I have uh, the body of Josh Nye, the mind of Ben Wheeler, and the heart of Blaine Davis. This is very bad news. I would much rather have, if I, I can say this because he's not here, I'd much rather have the body of Ben Wheeler and the mind of Josh Nye. Now, Blaine, you know, I'll, I do like your beard, but um, I can't say that I want your body. But, brother, I love your heart. I love your heart. That's a, that's a pretty good, like, initial pass at, at the Anglican way of being Christian, the body of Rome, the mind of Calvin, and the heart of Luther. Okay. The other thing I wanted to do just sort of as a quick introduction was to talk about just a, a very, very brief personal story of mine. Like so many people here, I'm a native Texan, and I grew up in the Baptist church. Raise your hand if you grew up in the Baptist church. Great. Wonderful. Praise God. Um, Long story short, I went off to college. College is great because it's an opportunity to sort of get up in the morning and say, now, I used to go to church because my parents wanted me to, but what do I want to do, right? Am I going to go to church this morning? Uh, that's what college is great for, I think, and I certainly had that experience. Long story short, in college, I was at, uh, at the EV Free Church, First Evangelical Free Church. You may have heard of Chuck Swindoll. Uh, that was a great experience, but then... Um, I was drawn into the, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church, same church as Ben Wheeler. Uh, many people have heard of Tim Keller, great preacher. I spent uh, many years in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America. I was ordained in that church. I, I studied theology and, and Greek and Hebrew in that church, and it was a wonderful experience. And so I graduated from seminary, went back to Austin, and what I did in Austin, I was a church planter. I'm still kind of a church planter, I think. Uh, but but I was I was a, a Presbyterian minister in Austin, in urban Austin, and I woke up one morning, and it was probably like Saturday, maybe, yeah, it was probably Saturday morning, and I'm like, okay, tomorrow's Sunday, I'm going to be standing in front of 100 people, what in the world am I going to do? And by the way, I'm not talking about my sermon, I'm talking about the worship service, Right? I found myself as a PCA pastor, as an evangelical pastor, and 
certainly the PCA, there's other traditions that are more evangelical than the PCA. Are you with me? But still, I, I found myself as a PCA pastor, Presbyterian minister, and it was up to me to sort of invent the liturgy, to come up with how are we going to worship next Sunday, tomorrow? What are we going to do? And I found myself literally cutting and pasting, copying and pasting from other church websites. And I, I sat there and I said to myself, this is not good. Like, I'm not wise enough to sort of come up out of my own little pea brain how God's holy people are supposed to worship. I was doing this week in and week out, and I realized, you know what? There's got to be a better way. I, 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 there just has to be some sort of church or tradition where you don't, where the pastor doesn't have to reinvent the worship every Sunday. Arranging worship, crafting worship according to what seems right in his own eyes, like the book of Judges says. And, and so I realized, I believe God is calling me to be in a tradition or a church in which it's not up to me to invent the liturgy, but rather the liturgy is something that we receive. That's why those collects, that word collect is a fancy word for prayer. That prayer that I just uh, read, I don't know how old it is. It might be a couple of hundred years old. I'm not sure, but I know this. Whoever wrote that prayer is wiser than I am. I'm not wise enough to create liturgies, to craft worship. And so God, I think that God used that whole experience to sort of draw me into what I would call a liturgical tradition, a tradition where uh, the liturgy is something that's handed down. It's handed down from the past. As Josh and I uh, mentioned, that word tradition means to pass down, transdare. If you speak Spanish, any Spanish speakers in the room, what does dar, dar mean? It means to give, to transdare is to give across the generations or across tradition. And the Book of Common Prayer uh, is a way that, that in the Anglican way, we receive the worship. We don't make it up. We don't reinvent it. Yes, it can be reformed. But basically, it's something that we receive. All right? So that's my little story. That's one of the ways that God drew me into the Episcopal Church. I needed to be in, an, in a liturgical tradition, a tradition where I was worshiping according to the Anglican ways, and it wasn't up to me to invent it every week. All right? Next slide. All right, this is kind of boring, a little bit of historical minutiae. Um, yeah, okay, so how do you slice and dice the church? I mean, we all know, and it's already been talked about over the, the last few Thursdays, um, you know, up until 1054, the church was basically united. I mean, we could talk about her heretical groups, blah, blah, blah. But in 1054, at least in outward appearances, in the main, we can say that the church was united. Then in 1054, there was a split. That's number two, a split between the East and the West. That resulted in the, what we call the Greek-speaking Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the, and the Western Church. Let me ask you, what church, what language did the Western Church speak? Latin. So you got the Greek-speaking East and the Latin-speaking West. Then in the West, number three, there was this split, right? This split between the Roman church on the one hand and these breakaway movements on the other, what, what eventually became known as Protestantism. And really what I want to talk to you about is under number four, really A and B right there. When it comes to Protestant churches, Protestant traditions, here's the way that I see it. Now, other people might slice it and dice it differently, but I really see all Protestant 
you, you can slice and dice the Protestants under two basic categories. You've got the, the Anabaptist tradition, which are folks like Quakers, Shakers, and the Amish. These are people, they're, typically they're called radical reformers. Uh, and then over and against that, you have what, what I think of as the magisterial Protestant traditions. It, it actually shouldn't say reformed right there. That's, that shouldn't say that. It should say magisterial Protestant churches slash traditions. Under this category, you really have three groups. You have Lutherans, the Reformed. Often we associate the Reformed traditions with Calvin, but there were other Reformers as well. Uh, you've got Lutheran, Reformed, and then Anglican. And then we could talk about how other churches that we all know of, like Methodist or maybe Church of Christ, how they come out of these other traditions. So Methodism and the Charismatic tradition come out of the Church of England. One of the reasons for that is because the Church of England historically places a high emphasis on holiness. And I don't know if there's any Methodists in the room or Charismatics in the room, but you probably realize that there's a high emphasis on holiness in those traditions. So that's, and then we could talk about the Reformed tradition. Church of Christ comes out of the Reformed tradition. Baptists historically come out of the Reformed tradition, although I think it's complicated. When it comes to Bible churches, I mean, I'm mindful that I'm in a Bible church. I grew up in the Bible church as well. Um, and I really don't know. I Like, Eric, did you talk about that? Okay, well, I need to listen to that talk. I need to listen to that talk. Because honestly, I think you could, I know that like Dallas Theological Seminary has some Anglican roots, so maybe you could categorize it that way. But then I also think that there's sort of a weird link up with the Anabaptist tradition in certain ways as well. Um, and one of the reasons that's interesting, we're going to come to in a few minutes, there was this guy named Richard Hooker, Richard Hooker, who I'm going to talk about, one of the great Anglican divines, and he was worried that the radical Puritans within the Church of England would eventually sort of end up like the Anabaptists. Hmm. That's kind of interesting. So that's how I slice and dice sort of the global church. Um, let's go to the next slide, Mark. Okay, there were some forerunners to the Reformation. This is still sort of mundane historical stuff. Um, a lot of people know about Wycliffe Bible Translators, great organization. Uh, John Wycliffe was one of the forerunners of the Reformation on the British Isles. Uh, he translated parts of the Bible, and so there were people in England in the 15th century, not the 16th century, but the 15th century, reading their Bibles, at least parts of it, in English. Um, the movement that's associated with John Wycliffe is called Lollardy. I was going to read a couple of paragraphs. This is a great book, The Study of Anglicanism, Sykes, Booty, and Knight. Um, but maybe I don't need to read it. Um, other forerunners of the Reformation in England were the Renaissance humanists. Josh, did you talk about the Renaissance humanists? Did anyone talk about that? Luther and Calvin were both Renaissance humanists. Um, when I think of, when I hear the word humanism, I immediately think of that Latin phrase, ad fontes. What does that mean? Back to the sources. So, so Renaissance humanism was this, this movement uh, preceding the Reformation that laid a great emphasis on getting back to the sources, back to sort of the classical texts and, and ways of thinking that shaped Christianity, things like the New Testament read in Greek, things like the Old Testament even read in Hebrew. Uh, Martin Luther did know Hebrew. He used Hebrew to translate the Old Testament. Um, and th but then also classical sources, like, well, like church fathers, like 
you know, the Cappadocian fathers, St. Irenaeus, St. Augustine, but also reading other things like Plato and Aristotle in the original Greek. This is all the fruit of Renaissance humanism. What's interesting about Renaissance humanism, two things. One, it was a big deal in England. It was, it was, a, it was as big a deal in, in England as it was anywhere else because in England you had a guy named John Collette, uh, soon to be Dean of St. Paul's in London. Anyone been to St. Paul's Cathedral in London? Second most amazing church on the planet after the Vatican, I would argue, St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, you had John Collette, but you had a couple of other guys John Collette was obviously uh, going to be a, a Protestant. I think that's accurate. Uh, but, but see, Renaissance humanism was not unique to Protestantism. I don't know if Father Josh and I referred to this, but um, in England you had two great, great, great names that come to mind. One is Thomas More. Thomas More, who was executed by King Henry VIII. We're going to talk about Henry in a minute. That's the qualm that I'm wanting to squelch ahead of time for y'all. Uh, but then also, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but Erasmus, the great uh, Renaissance humanist Erasmus, who was a Catholic just like Thomas More. Thomas More was amazing. He never left the Catholic Church. He got his head cut off. He was willing to die for his Roman Catholic convictions. But in, in addition to that, King Henry VIII invited Erasmus to come translate his Bible in England. So that's kind of cool. So those are two instances of of the winds of reform that were blowing through the Christian church in the West even before the 16th century and even among Catholics, even among diehard Catholics who never uh, changed their convictions. Okay, next slide. All right. What's this grievance that I want to sort of squelch ahead of time? Well, it has to do with King Henry VIII, right? Because what's the big thing that people always say about King Henry VIII? They're always like, oh, you Anglicans, Y'all don't really care about theology. King Henry VIII, he just wanted to divorce his wife and shack up with some younger babe or whatever, right? Now, that's maybe 10% true. I, I would say that there's sort of two things that you need to know about what was going on with King Henry VIII in the 16th century in England. The first thing is it wasn't just about sex or even just about marriage. King Henry VIII was trying to be a good monarch, he was trying to protect his people. He knew that it was extremely important for him to have a male heir. And so King Henry's motives were not just like personal or like wanting a divorce. It was really about the good of his people. Now, I'm not saying that God likes divorce. I don't think that. I'm not saying that, that, that King Henry VIII was squeaky clean. But I'm saying that if we want to understand what was going on in the Church of England during this time, we need to understand that this is also a political issue and that King Henry VIII was looking out for his people. That's the first point. Second point um, is, I'm going to read it. Yes, King, yes, Henry decided that it was politically advantageous for him to choose side X over side Y, right? The Protestant party over the Catholic party, because you got to remember, the Reformation had already been picking up steam on the continent, by the time all this stuff happened. So Henry is on this island, which is relatively secluded from the continent. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But by the time the Reformation sort of hits the English shores, Henry has a choice. And yes, it's true that he did choose to side with uh, the Protestant party over the Catholic party. But here's what a lot of people don't understand. That's no different 
than what was happening with Luther. That's no different than what was happening with Calvin. That's no different than what was happening with the, with, uh, the Catholic uh, lands. Um, in every case in the Reformation, what's going on is this admixture of theology and politics. Am I saying that theology played no role in the motivations of the Church of England to break with Rome or in the motivations of Calvin to break with Rome? I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that it's not unique to the situation in England that the politics and the theology were bound up together. It was, it, these things go together. In fact, I would be so bold as to argue that throughout the history of mankind, of, of the human race and human culture, politics and religion have always been inseparable. And really, it's just we modern Western Enlightenment thinkers who think that they can be separated. And, and what that means is that for people like you and me, modern Western folks, what we tend to do is we tend to privatize religion. We tend to think that religion is this private matter, me and Jesus, something that I feel in my heart. That, that's not biblical, it's not historical, and it's unique to a very small cross-section of Western civilization, namely us. So does that make sense? What I'm trying to argue is that the whole thing with King Henry VIII and the political circumstances that led up to the Reformation in England, they're not really different from anything else, Luther's situation. You know, um, in, in Luther's Saxony, the prince had a political motivation to side with Luther over the Catholics. And in France, the, the rulers had a political motivation. Absolutely, this is true to side with the Catholics over the Protestants. Again, I'm not saying that theology doesn't matter. I'm just saying that politics are interwoven through the whole thing, and that's true not just in England, but everywhere else, even in Catholic lands as well as Protestant lands. Am I making sense? Cool. All right. Did I squelch the grievance? Am I going to have people walking up to me and saying, King Henry VIII, he's just a scumbag. If I do, let's go drink a beer and talk about it. All right, next slide. And Josh, I look forward to your questions. All right. Okay. Um, yeah, I've already talked about this a little bit, the importance of geography. Um, Angli uh, the England is an island. Great Britain is an island. And so, so the situation in England in the 16th century was different from the situation in places like the German lands, um, Geneva, Switzerland, places like that. Why? It's because in those places like Luther's Germany, Calvin's Geneva, you had Catholics like breathing down the throats of these reformers. Am I making sense? Like it was a matter of life and death. Luther was chased all over the place. His life was in danger for better or for worse. The fact of the matter is England was always insulated by this body of water. And what that meant is that there was a bit more stability. There was a bit more, um, I don't know, a bit more leisure. And so the and, and what that ended up meaning is that the Church of England, the, the version or the flavor of the Reformation that comes out of the Church of England is more what? It's more conservative. It's not as radical. The high five that the Church of England gave to Luther and Calvin and company was really kind of, it wasn't a low five, but it was a medium five. Why? Well, one reason is because you didn't have Catholics slitting their throats as much. All right? Next slide. 
All right. And so what happens, what happens is that the Church of England does break with Rome. And so this is a quote, uh, quotation, again, from this book, The Study of Anglicanism. Um, this is an article by a guy named William Hogard, and I just want to read it. <clears throat> the four-year series of parliamentary acts, a four-year series of parliamentary acts culminated in 1534 with the declaration that England's king is the only supreme head in earth of the Church of England called the, the Ecclesia Anglicana, the Anglicana Ecclesia. So the church split. The church said good, good riddance to Rome. Next slide. But, but, I am a representative of that church that did part company with Rome, but my claim is that I'm a member of that church, a representative of that church that did not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but one reason, and you have to understand that the Church of England, again, this, the fact that it's an island is a big deal. One of the things that that meant is that the, the, um, the sense of solidarity, the sense of patriotism that the people of England had went back for, for centuries. They didn't think of themselves simply as Roman Catholics. They thought of themselves as Christians on this island. And so, so when the Church of England um, broke with Rome, one of the very, very important things, I heard Father Nye talk about this, one of the important things that the Church of England held on to was the historic episcopate. So in the Church of England, we believe in apostolic succession. We believe that, that, that we are connected to the apostles. By the way, do you think it's important to be connected to the apostles? I mean, you know, we, we talked about the scriptures. Do you realize, I'm, now I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but do you realize that whenever Jesus and, say, St. Paul talked about the scriptures, what did they mean? They meant the Hebrew Bible. They meant the Hebrew scriptures. Um, when, when you and I think about the New Testament, the New Testament is a set of writings that bear witness to Christ. There are a set of writings that seek to interpret the meaning of Jesus Christ in light of the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, written by the apostles. The New Testament is a set of, it, it's apostolic teaching. So it's very important that we be connected to the, to the apostles. I'm going to talk about how the church is connected to the apostles in a minute. But one of the big ways, maybe a way that's second to none for us in, in the Anglican way, is that we are connected to the apostles through bishops. We are connected to the apostles through the historic episcopate that goes back to the apostles. That's the claim. I think Josh might want to talk about that. I don't know. But I think it's similar to the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church in that regard. So this would be an example of how the, the, the reformers in England said, okay, we, we hear Luther, we hear Calvin, yes, scripture has to be in some sense ultimate, but we have been doing church on this island for hundreds of years, way over a thousand years. 
1,300 years. We've been worshiping the same way. We've been, we've been saying the, the mass in the same way. We've had bishops. We're going to hold on to bishops. The second big, big important sense in which the Church of England did not throw the baby out with the bathwater, in, in spite of the fact that it gave a medium five to Luther and Calvin, uh, has to do with the Book of Common Prayer. I wanted to, um, I wanted to, to uh, give you a, a picture of the title page of this, but I didn't. I would say that the Book of Common Prayer is probably the second greatest uh, text in the English language. Second to what? What? What kind of Bible? Which Bible? The King James Bible. The King James Bible published in 1611 under the reign of King James I. Another great gift that the Anglican Church has given to all Christians. But, but, but the Book of Common Prayer is amazing. And so I, I really wanted to make two points about the, the BCP. One is that when Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, great historic see, um, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury during the reign of Henry VIII, uh, someone who eventually gave his life for the evangelical cause, not after intense scruples of conscience. Uh, when Thomas Cranmer reformed, uh, well, let, let's just say when he compiled the Book of Common Prayer, which contains a lot of stuff. It contains a lot of stuff. Uh, it contains wedding services, for example. Maybe you've seen some of those. If you've ever seen, like, you know, any of the royal weddings that are televised all over the world, that's from the Book of Common Prayer. So it, it contains a lot of stuff, but one of the things that the Book of Common Prayer contains is the Mass, the service of Holy Eucharist. And the big point that I just want to make to you all tonight, without getting into too much detail, is that basically... Uh, Thomas Cranmer said, you know what, we're going to, yes, we're going to translate the Mass from Latin into English in order that the people might be able fully to participate, yes, but we're not going to change the Mass. So a lot of people think that in the Catholic Church before the 16th century, before the invention of the printing press, a lot of people think that, that the Catholic Church was this monolithic, homogenous uh, pattern of worship that was exactly the same in every diocese, every parish throughout the Catholic Church. That's not true. What is true is that you had little regions uh, of, of churches that, that would develop their own local customs. Uh, when we talk about liturgy, we talk about rite, R-I-T-E, and ceremony. Rite is sort of the words on the page. Ceremony is like the liturgical movements that happen around the altar, etc. Both of those two things uh, would, over time, came to vary from region to region to region. So, for example, in Italy, uh, you had the Ambrosian Rite that, that, was, that had certain features of it that were somewhat distinctive. In France, you had the Gaelic Rite that had other features that were somewhat distinctive. Well, in England, we had the Serum Rite. Anyone been to Salisbury, England? Anyone been to the cathedral at Salisbury? Amazing. I should have put a picture up there. That word Serum means Salisbury. So the Serum Rite is the, the way that the, that the Christians on this island had been worshiping for hundreds of years. And when Thomas Cranmer, uh, who gave a medium five to Luther and Calvin, said, we're going to translate some stuff, we're going to make some reforms, we're going to compile the Book of Common Prayer, he said, we're going to keep the Mass the same. That's, that's interesting to me. 
The second thing that's interesting to me, I mean, there's a lot of things that are interesting about the Book of Common Prayer. I'm trying to keep it brief. The second thing is, and I, how am I doing on time? I forgot to set my timer. Where's that clock you keep talking about, Eric? Ah, okay, good, good. All right. Um, the second thing about, about the Book of Common Prayer is the daily office. Um, and y'all probably know that, that monks and nuns, what we call religious folks in the Catholic Church primarily, they have a rigorous prayer life, right? So, so Catholic religious folks, nuns and monks, they have a daily routine of prayer. And in the Middle Ages, that, that was certainly no different. And, and basically the monks and, nuns would, monks and nuns would pray nine times a day. They would pray the liturgy of the hours nine times a day. And what Thomas Cranmer did is he said, okay, um, that's pretty awesome. Like all people should pray. All people should have some resources and the ability to enter into that spiritual way of life. So what Thomas Cranmer did is he said, I'm going to take these nine offices that the monks and nuns would pray. I'm going to simplify them. I'm going to consolidate them. And I'm going to turn them basically into two offices, morning prayer and evening prayer. And what Thomas Cranmer did is he said, I'm going to put these services into the hands of ordinary baptized Christians. Do you like what I just said, Charles? Is, is that more or less accurate? All right. Uh, and, and see, the reason I think this is interesting, there's a couple of things. Charles Taylor wrote a book called The Secular Age, great book. And Charles Taylor says that what's, one of the things that's happening in the Reformation is that these reformers are basically trying to take the two speeds, the two different speeds, that's what he says, in medieval Christendom, you've got two speeds, sort of two levels of Christians. You've got the spiritual folks, the bishops, the popes, the monks, the nuns, and then you've got the lay people, people who are like busting rocks, just trying to make it through the day, right? But they're baptized too. What, what Charles Taylor in this book, The Secular Age, says is that what the reformers were doing is that they were trying to take these two speeds and reduce them to one speed. Does that make sense? By the way, when you read the secular age, it's not clear whether, whether Charles Taylor thinks that this is a good thing or a bad thing. Now, probably most people in this room are immediately saying, well, yeah, that's a great thing. I'm not so sure. There's dangers to that as well. But the point is, I do think that this is what the reformers were doing. For example, John Calvin did this. I think that near the end of this talk, Blaine Davis is going to give a talk on vocation. Am I right? Now, probably that's going to come more from a Lutheran perspective, which is great. But John Calvin has a rich theology of vocation. I mean, what John Calvin is trying to say to people is, hey, all of life is sacred. You want to live a sacred life? You don't have to be cloistered. You don't have to be a bishop or a priest. No. Do, are you a janitor in an elementary school? Your work is sacred, right? This was one of the great things that Luther, but I think, it's, in my opinion, especially Calvin, made, a, made an awesome point of this. But what I want to say, and I love that, but what I want to say is it's kind of theoretical. It's not bad. It's not bad, but it's kind of theoretical. Have you ever noticed that Calvinism is often very theoretical? I can say that because I'm a former Presbyterian minister. <laughs> but, but it's often very theoretical. What Cranmer Thomas Cranmer is doing with the Book of Common Prayer, it's not theoretical. It's not a matter of theory. He's not giving people this theology of vocation. No, he's saying, here, you too can pray like the monks. 
you too can enter into this contemplative way, this prayerful Christian life. You can say morning prayer, you can say evening prayer. We call that the daily office. What, what, what Cranmer is basically, basically trying to do is to say to the baptized faithful in England, now you are all monks and nuns. Pretty cool. I would say that that's another way in which the Church of England gave a medium five, maybe a three-quarters five to Luther and Calvin, but didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We, we wanted to hold on to this monastic, contemplative way of participating. That's a big word, participating in the mystical, divine life of God. Cool? Next slide. All right. So, um, yes, the Church of England performed the original Brexit in the 16th century, uh, but that doesn't mean that it was smooth, <laughs> right? Basically, what happened is you had, you had three monarchs that I want to talk about, I think three. Well, so four. You've got King Henry. His Archbishop of Canterbury was Thomas Cranmer, but then you had three other monarchs immediately after him. You had Edward VI, who, is ex who was extremely reformed, okay? By the way, Edward VI was nine years old. So when you read about like these reforms that Edward VI implemented, you got to understand he was a nine-year-old kid. What we're really talking about was his council of, uh, his council of, of counselors that surrounded him and made his decisions for him, okay? But you had Edward VI, very reformed Protestant, um, and then you had what we call Bloody Mary. Sorry, Josh. I, I, I'm just trying to keep it real for these good folks. You've got Bloody Mary. You've got, you've got, uh, <laughs> oh, this is awesome. You, you've got Henry VIII, and then you've got Edward VI, then you've got Bloody Mary. Then you have Elizabeth, all right? What I'm, what I'm wanting to say to you is that, is that in these second two monarchs, Edward VI and Bloody Mary, it was it was turbulent. Uh, Edward VI was very reformed, and then Bloody Mary was like very Catholic, and it's like the people were getting jerked around. They had whiplash. Are we Protestant? Are we Catholic? I don't know. I have whiplash right now. <laughs> yeah, and I had a list of, I'm looking at the clock, okay, I had a list of things I was going to talk about. Um, let me just give you some ways that under Edward, things went in a more reformed direction than they did under Henry VIII originally, okay? I'll just list these real quick. More church property was transferred away from the church to royal and private treasuries. King Henry VIII basically privatized the monasteries. Kind of wish he didn't do that, but he did. And then under Edward, even more church land was transferred to private property and the, and the, the royalty. That's one thing. Secondly, uh, the liturgy uh, became more and more in the vernacular, more and more into English. Uh, thirdly, there was an, and this is a big deal, this is important, there was an, so, okay, so when was the first book of, Com who compiled the first book of common prayer? Thomas Cranmer. Under what monarch was he? Henry VIII. That was in 1549, okay? That's the first book of common prayer, 1549. The second book of common prayer was revised under Edward VI. Do you think that it was more Catholic than the first one or more Reformed than the first one? That's right. And that came out in 1551. I think there's a typo right there. Is there? No? 
maybe not, good. Um, the second prayer book came out in 1551 and that was more reformed. And I'm gonna talk about that more in, in just a second. Um, fourthly, clerical marriage was approved under Edward, so priests can now get married. Thanks be to God, just saying. <laughs> fifth, <clears throat> fifth, the articles of religion were crafted. Now, raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I have, because I was a Presbyterian minister. And the Westminster Confession of Faith was uh, an amplification and a development of the original 39 articles, although they weren't 39 at first, they were 42. So that happened under Edward VI. All right, so you've got Edward VI, who's very reformed, and then you have the Romanizing. Let me hear you say Romanizing. Romanizing. The Romanizing Bloody Mary. And so the, the poor people of England, they're like, where are we? And this tension continues. This is a big deal. You want to know why Episcopalians are so weird? This is why. You, you want to know why Episcopalians are able to put up with like crazy liberals and crazy conservatives? This is why. It's because of the Elizabethan settlement. Now, what is the Elizabethan settlement? Well, what I want to say, and let's see, where am I? Where am I? Oh, yeah, I'm at, I'm at C. See, look at B. Th these tensions between these reformed movements and these Romanizing movements, they sort of continued. By the way, they're still happening in my church. Um, and they continued through the reign of Henry VIII, through the reign of Edward VI, through the reign of Bloody Mary, and even in, into the reign of the fourth monarch, whose name is what? Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, God bless her. And, and she is known for the Elizabethan settlement or the Elizabethan compromise. And I don't have a ton of time. It looks like I only have nine minutes. So instead of trying to give you a big, eloquent articulation of the Elizabethan settlement, let me just give you an example, okay? And the example comes from the Book of Common Prayer. Remember, you, you have the first one in 1549. I'm on C under Henry. And then you have this more, this, the pendulum swings more to the reform side in 1551, right? Okay, now I want to talk to you about the words of administration. What are the words of administration? The words of administration are when the, the, the celebrant, the priest, or yes, the lay Eucharistic minister. It's whenever someone hands the consecrated elements of bread, let's just say bread for now, the body of Christ to the people. Are you with me? Does that make sense? So the words of, of administration is what the lay Eucharistic minister or the celebrant or a priest says when he gives you the body of Christ. So maybe you've gone to an Episcopal church and if, or maybe you're a Lutheran church, and maybe you've heard these words, the body of Christ, right? Maybe you've heard these words, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. Those are words of administration. Let me tell you what the words of administration were in the first book of Common Prayer, 1549. They were this. This is what you would hear when you came forward to receive the body of Christ. You would hear this. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, Preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Now let me repeat that. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Now, we could talk about like if we like that. I like it. I don't know if you like it. It doesn't really matter. The point is those words are very Catholic. 
Those words are very Catholic. Those words are sort of suggesting that, wow, if you eat this, whatever it is, this holy morsel, then you are ingesting the body of Christ and it will preserve your body unto everlasting life. If you eat this, wow, you're gonna live forever. And by the way, St. Ignatius of Antioch called that the consecrated elements, the medicine of immortality. But see, that's a very Catholic view. Are you with me? That's, that was in the 1549 prayer book, the original prayer book under King Henry VIII. But then the pendulum swings to the reformed end under Edward VI and his counselors, and the words of administration are changed to this. Remember, what were they before? The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Very high Eucharistic theology, a very realist theology. Then the pendulum swings to the reformed side and the words of administration become this. Take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed on him in thy heart by faith. Let me repeat that. This is 1551 after the pendulum swings to the reformed side under Edward VI. Take and eat in remembrance in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed on him in thy heart by faith. That's very reformed. That's, that, that's suggesting that, that what we're doing in the service of Holy Communion is a memorial and also that, that the faith of the believer is a super big deal, right? Those are things that Protestants like. So you've got, in 1549, you've got this Catholic approach and then in 1551, you have this more Protestant, reformed approach, what's the Elizabeth, Elizabethan settlement? Anyone want to guess? Typically Anglican. Let's do both, baby. And that's it. Let's do both. And we do do both. And every Sunday at Christ Church, five times, in fact, every Sunday, I say both. Take indeed in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed on him in thy heart by faith. And then I'll move to the next person and say, this is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee. Preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. What's the Elizabethan settlement? It's this pragmatic, uh, it is principled, but, but, but Elizabeth was very pragmatic and she said, you know what, we're gonna do both. For the peace and stability of our land, for our people, we are gonna do both. Now, Hooker, letter D, was sort of, he came along a little bit later, although he grew up in Elizabeth's reign, and he, I would say that he is the person who sort of articulated in theological terms this great Elizabethan settlement, so I would say that Elizabeth was very pragmatic, and I would also say that that is a good thing. By the way, when I was reformed, I didn't think it was a good thing. Now I've grown up, I've matured, I've had babies, I've been married for 20 years, and now I'm a, I'm a big believer in pragmatism. All right? Uh, I love what Rowan Williams says. Rowan Williams says that Anglicanism is contemplative pragmatism, and I love that. Richard Hooker gave some theory and some principles to it, and I, uh, Mark, do we, can you click on that link? I know I'm running out of time, so I'm going to make this brief, but can you see there's a link right there? Uh, can you, like, go to that website real quick? If not, it's okay. I can just read it from my blog. <laughs> Slightly embarrassing, but I'll, I'll just read this quote from Richard Hooker's The Laws of Ecclesiastical Poli Polity. 
Um, what, 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 what Hooker is famous for is, is articulating um, what sometimes in the vernacular is called the three-legged stool. Uh, Father Charles, I'd love for you to help me with this, either now or in the Q&A. But, but the three legs of this stool, a lot of people don't like that phrase, three-legged stool, whatever, are scripture, reason, and tradition. In that order, scripture, reason, and tradition. And I'm just going to read a quote from the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. It goes like this. What scripture, okay, what scripture does plainly deliver to that first place both of credit and obedience is due. The next whereunto any, uh, sorry, the, the next whereunto is whatsoever any man can necessarily conclude by force of reason. So you've got scripture, you've got reason, and then he continues. After these things, the voice of the church succeedeth. That which the church by her ecclesiastical authority shall probably think and define to be true or good must in congruity of reason overrule all other inferior judgments whatsoever. So yeah, scripture's on top. Reason is next. Sometimes I wish tradition was next, but no, reason is next. Scripture, reason, then tradition. But make no mistake, what Hooker is saying is tradition is real. Like, the, the tradition of the church trumps your private opinion. The tradition of the church trumps your private interpretation of scripture. And that's a big deal. So you see, this is kind of Protestant and kind of Catholic. All right? Um, there was some more that I wanted to say about Richard Hooker, but I'm running out of time. So, Mark, why don't we go to the next slide? And this is the last slide. And I think that this... This uh, will lead seamlessly into a Q&A discussion. I hope that it'll be wonderful. Um, th this is what I really think, okay? Um, and, and a lot of these are questions, but they're also rhetorical questions, as I was telling, discussing with Eric earlier. Uh, just some questions that I have. This is what I really think. The first thing is this. And, and a lot of this just comes out of my journey, you know? Historically, the Christian life is seen to be a journey into God, a peregrinatio into God. And my journey has led me from what I would consider to be Bible Belt evangelical fundamentalism, which I'm thankful for, into a deeper form of Catholicity. That has been my journey up to now. And, and a lot of these rhetorical questions sort of come out of that journey um, and I forgot to quote my mom. Maybe, maybe I'll get to her in a minute. I'll get to her in a minute. Um, but the first rhetorical question is this. Should, should we really think that every man can interpret the Bible for himself? I mean, I know that as, as Americans, like we tend to say, yeah, of course. I'm not so sure. Did you know that Plato and Aristotle were not big fans of democracy? You know Why? Because Plato and Aristotle said, an unvirtuous people cannot govern themselves well. And guess what, folks? There's never been a civilization in the, in the history of the human race where the rank and file have been virtuous. Now, I know I sound kind of elitist right now, but think about it. There's a reason why the founding fathers required that if you're going to vote, you have to loan, own property. Why? If you own property, you have skin in the game. So again, I feel like an elitist right now, but there is truth to that. There is truth to that. And so I'm asking the question, is it wise 
to think that any old Tom, Dick, or Harry, I mean, maybe some guy who plays video games all the time, you know that there's, there's, there's drug epidemics in our country that are rampant. Do we really think that any old person can interpret the Bible for himself? That's a real question. I think that the answer is yes and no. Yes, in the sense that the Bible is perspicuous. Its basic message is clear. God made us. We sinned. Jesus died and rose. He made it all better. God wins. Yeah, that's true. But don't forget that C.S. Lewis said, and I think I'm jumping ahead of myself, C.S. Lewis said that the Bible is a book for grown-ups. And the church fathers said that that the gospel of John is like a puddle that an infant or a toddler can play in Yeah, perspicuous, baby. But it's also an ocean that an elephant can drown in. The scriptures are not easy to interpret. And the Bible must be interpreted. All right? So should we really think that that any old Tom, Dick, or Harry, every man can interpret the Bible for himself? Well, yes and no. That's my view. Secondly, individualism is not an option. Again, the Bible must be interpreted. Whose interpretation wins? It's not an option to say my way or the highway. See, the church is a family. That's one of the biblical images that the, that the scriptures give us for the church. It's a family. Well, I can't go up to my wife and say, hey, babe, I know you want our kids to be in public school. I want them to be in Christian school. I'm out. No. My, the my way or the highway option is not an, is not an option for members of the body of Christ. And yet, the Bible has to be interpreted whose interpretation wins. There has to be a way in which the church is authoritative in its its interpretation of Scripture. And I think that the Bible teaches that. I think that that, uh, tradition teaches that. I think that church history teaches that. C, how, how is the church to be connected to the apostles? I was in seminary. I loved, I got a great seminary education. I loved it. It was a reformed seminary. And I remember walking up to a professor after class and I asked him, in what sense is the church apostolic? Because remember, are the apostles a big deal? Oh my gosh, they're a huge deal. The New, what is the New Testament? It's, it's, the, it's apostolic teaching. And so I'm asking the question, in what sense, number three, is the church connected to the apostles? And what my seminary professor said is he said, we're connected to the apostles in terms of doctrine. Now, do you think I disagree with that? Of course I don't disagree with that. I agree with that. I do think that the doctrine of our churches must be apostolic, but I also think that it's more than that. I think that the church has to be, and in reality is, connected to the apostles in an organic way, in a relational way, in an embodied way. The church is not a proposition machine. The church, again, is a family. How am I connected to my great-great-grandfather? Well, hopefully I believe some of the stuff that he believed, but also I'm, I'm in his family. So how is the church connected to the apostles? My argument, my suggestion, is that it has to be more than just in terms of doctrine. Uh, Four, would St. Paul recognize some of our churches today? And not just St. Paul, St. Ignatius. How about St. Athanasius? How about St. Augustine? Read the book of Acts. The church did four things when it gathered 
on the Lord's day, the first day of the week. They prayed, they, they shared alms, they in, engaged in apostolic teaching, and they broke bread. So, see, these were Eucharistic communities. They, 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 they performed a ritual that St. That Paul tells us about. So, my question is, th- think about some mega churches. I'm not going to name any names, but just I'm asking the question, would St. Paul even recognize that as a Eucharistic community? That's a good question, and I, it's a rhetorical question also. Uh, with the implied answer of, I don't think so. Or sometimes I wonder. (laughs) Sometimes I wonder. Next, why does the liturgy matter? I mentioned the liturgy earlier. And there's so much I could say here. I mean, the the liturgy, I was thinking about it today. You know, there's certain Christians, you you ask, if you were to ask them, what are you doing on Sunday morning when you go to church? They would say, well, I'm learning about God. That's cool. But other Christians would say, I'm participating in the triune life. And I think that that second answer is what the liturgy gives us. It's a way of participating in the dance of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what the liturgy is. The church fathers talked about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as a dance. And and I love, I think it was G.K. Chesterton said, no, it wasn't, it was someone said that the liturgy is the dance steps of heaven. So you see, the liturgy is a big deal. Let me tell you another reason why the liturgy is a big deal. Well, gosh, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm getting a thumbs up from Eric. Gosh, I can feel my inner Presbyterian popping out right now. Um, You know, I'm a PhD student at the University of Dallas, and I, teach a couple of classes at UT Tyler. And just this last week, I was, we were talking about Descartes, Rene Descartes, and Aristotle. And we were talking about how Descartes thinks that basically souls, human souls, the human mind can exist independently of the body. Does that make sense? Descartes said, who am I in my core? Who is the human being at its essence? I am a thinking thing. I am my mind. Okay. Some people have described that kind of like we are a ghost in a machine. What's the ghost? It's my soul. That's the real me. What's the machine? It's my body. That's not really me. Who I am in my essence is a soul, a mind, a thinking thing, okay? Aristotle had a very different view. Aristotle said, what is a human being? A human being is a unity of body and soul. So what is the essence of Matt Bolter? I am body I am soul. You can't rip them apart, okay? Now, what I do every semester with my students, because I know I'm teaching in the Bible Belt, and that's partly good, is I'll, 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 I'll talk to them about Descartes and how he had this idea that our souls can sort of exist, float around independently of our bodies, and I'll talk about Aristotle, how he thought that they're, they're inseparable, and if you lose one, you lose the other, that I am my body, I am my soul, and this is very complicated, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but what I say to my students is, hey, which of these two do you think is more biblical? Which of these two do you think is more Christian? Now, what do you think they say? They do. They say Descartes. And then I say, why? Why do you say that? And what do you think they say? They, they say, well, and, and this happened on Wednesday, yesterday. Is today Thursday? It happened yesterday. Someone said, oh, I know. It's because the Bible always talks about how we go to heaven when we die. And I said, yo, yeah, yeah. Like, I know, yeah. And, and I looked at her and I said, yeah, there, there might be like two places in the New Testament 
where it's clearly talking about how when we die in the Lord, we go to heaven and our bodies rot in the grave. There might be two places in the New Testament where that's taught. So like the thief on the cross, maybe. And there might be this other place in Second Thessalonians. Okay, but I looked at this sweet young lady and I said, really, if you read the letters of St. Paul, read them five times each. What you're going to find, he does not talk about going to heaven when you die. He does not talk about your soul sort of existing independently of your body. No, what Paul's talking about is the renewal of creation. What Paul is talking about is how God is working in this world to bring about the new creation where heaven and earth are refused together. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that the chief doctrine that we confess is going to heaven when you die? No, it's the resurrection of the body. And what that means is that the New Testament, along with the Old Testament, remember the Sadducees didn't even believe, let's not talk about them. (laughs) The, The New Testament is all about the resurrection of the body. The New Testament says, the New Testament gives us our Christian anthropology where we believe that I am my body, I am my soul. And I looked at this young lady and I said, yes, maybe we do go to heaven when we die, but if so, that's not full salvation. What full salvation is, is when our bodies are raised with Christ and our bodies and souls are reunited, that's whenever we are fully redeemed. Now, what's my point about the liturgy? My point about the liturgy is that I know that here at Bethel, that on Sunday mornings y'all say the creed. And I don't know if it's the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And it doesn't really matter because they both talk about the resurrection of the body. The creed does not talk about going to heaven when you die. And there's a good reason for that. But what is my point right now? My point right now is if Christians in, in the Bible Belt said the creed every Sunday and heard about the resurrection of the body every Sunday and confessed the resurrection of the body every Sunday, if they said the creed, maybe they wouldn't think that Descartes is an accurate representation of the Christian faith. See, the liturgy matters, and that's just one example of why, okay? Um, Last, at the end of the day, Roman numeral six, at the end of the day, I have one foot in the Catholic world and one foot in the Reformed or Protestant world. That's, that's the church that I'm in. I'm a reformed Catholic. I know it's kind of weird. It's kind of messy sometimes, but this is my church and I'm sticking with it. For now, maybe you can convert me. <laughs> and my prayer, I have a prayer, right? This is a prayer of thanksgiving uh, and it is a prayer of thanksgiving. It's from the Book of Common Prayer and it is a prayer um, for the mission of the church. I thought about praying for the saints and faithful departed, but I, I don't know. I didn't want to freak you out too much. So let's, let's pray for the mission of the church, shall we? Let's pray. Almighty God, you sent your son Jesus to reconcile the world to yourself. We praise and bless you for those whom you have sent in the power of the spirit to preach the gospel to all nations. We thank you that in all parts of the earth, a community of love has been gathered together by their prayers and labors, and that in every place your servants call upon your name. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours 
forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. I don't know about you, but I need a nap. Would you like some of my chamomile tea? I would not, actually. But as is his custom, my friend Matt Bolter always consistently exceeds expectations. Um, I have this column of bone that runs from my medulla oblongata a little bit further south, and it contains my spinal column, and that spinal column contains a lot of spinal juice, and that spinal juice is absolutely carbonated right now because of this guy. Thank you. This has been the greatest thrill of many, many years of, of thinking and praying, and to hear guys like Mark Brayton of our Savior's Lutheran Church, to hear guys like Ben Wheeler from Redeemer Presbyterian, to hear Father Josh Nye from the Catholic Diocese, and to hear Matt Bolter. And Eric Barton. Well, to hear you guys not just... And uh, Bishop Strickland. And Bishop Strickland, thank you. Not just Minor speak detail. into this, but... Um, my goodness, to speak so uh, poignantly and yeah. so graciously. My Lutheran friends are wearing T-shirts. Jana, come, 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 come. Since you're, since you're causing a scene anyway, what does this say on the bottom of your shirt? Grace changes everything. We believe that. So thank you. And so Amen. it's been so delightful to see my partners in ministry, my friends, uh, to see them. Oh, my goodness, not just come up and do a thing, but do it like you just did. Matt, thank you. Thank you for doing that. And so now we're going to, if you're okay with that, yeah, we're going to uh, take some questions for Matt. Anything that you would like to just get clarification on, any some, some questions? Father and I, please don't disappoint here. you got to have some questions. You know, Eric, on second thought, you know. No, 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 no. No, we did this. We did this with him. It, it, it's a lock-in now. We've got <laughs> we've we've got scones downstairs. We can go all night. But any quite we're going to start here. Okay, so first you were Baptist, then you were Presbyterian, and now you're an Episcopalian. Yeah. So yeah. Now, no, I, I thought we would take. I thought we would take him to the Lutheran Church. I've but, got a lot of Catholics praying for me. <laughs> but. How did you make, what did you have to do to make that leap from Presbyterian to Episcopalian so that they would accept you? This is kind of like a practical question, huh? Yeah. Um, I knocked on the bishop's door. <laughs> Literally. She, she, that's kind of weird. She spent three hours with me. Um, and she said, okay, um, like, if you want, wanted to become an Episcopal priest, first thing she said is, you remind me of my son, and his name is also Matt. That was kind of cool. <laughs> but then she said, if you really want to do this, you need to do this, 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 and this. And the first this was to be confirmed, to be confirmed in the Episcopal Church. Confirmation is whenever the bishop lays hands on you. And re remember, the bishop, we think that bishops are connected to the apostles. So confirmation is a big deal. It's whenever the bishop lays hands on you and brings you into the church. And so that was the first thing that I had to do. And that was a big deal because I went back to my Presbyterian, the, the presbytery, and said, I think this is what God's calling me to do. And, they, and actually, my bishop said, you have to tell them that you're leaving. Yeah, she said, you have to tell them that you're leaving. And it was hard. 
Um, but I'm grateful that my Presbyterian elders, that my fellow presbyters in the church, some of them, there were a couple of them who sort of got all in a wad and thought I'd lost my mind. But, but the majority of them said, we think you're slightly crazy, but we can see this and, and we support you and we're praying for you. Go in peace. So yeah, I had to do a lot of stuff to become an Episcopal priest. I had to be confirmed. I had to spend eight, uh, a year at, at an Episcopal seminary learning the liturgy mainly. Um, I had to do a summer of CPE, clinical pastoral education, which, which is when you spend a summer on a floor at a hospital, being a hospital chaplain, and other stuff like that. Thank you. And it was well worth it. Hello, Matt. It's good to see it's you again. See you. It's, it's, after, it's, it's great been, to see you. It's been really five years or so, and I'm delighted. It's clear that you haven't forgotten anything from Catherine Pickstock's work. I mean, that was quite evident. Nor have I forgotten today. your words about various apostolic seas. <laughs> um, thank, you. Oh, uh, thank you, I guess. Uh, I hope. So, um, uh, also, uh, other thing is, I'm totally happy to argue with you about this when you buy me a beer yeah. across the street. Done. Um, so that'll be great. Uh, I have, oh, I have like 20 questions, but um, one of them is, um, I, 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 one of the things that I think many Catholics who come to know the Episcopalian uh, and Anglican tradition uh, are jealous of is this aspect of the the daily office as it's been committed to. Uh, the laity and not simply in the monasteries. Obviously, in the Catholic Church, we still have an emphasis of the office being prayed by the by the, the daily prayer of the church being prayed by priests, nuns, monks, brothers, sisters, etc. And now, um, in the last 40 or 50 years, we've had a real emphasis on encouraging uh, your average layperson to take up praying the divine office. But we don't have that nearly as extensively as y'all do. Certainly, that's a great value to Cranmer's work. I found it intriguing that you pointed out to things like that which are pragmatic uh, and mm -hmm. contemplative, and that I think we can all imagine, uh, we can all see some real value to. But I also noted that you swiftly avoided discussing any of the theological claims that Cranmer had in those years. Cranmer certainly did uh, maintain a distinction in his, in his theology uh, from what at least people in the Catholic Church were, responding, were, were claiming. And I was hoping you could speak a little bit about the specific uh, theological distinctions or developments that Cranmer was making in that time over and above uh, some of the pragmatic aspects? I mean, Doug, lock the door. Nobody's going anywhere. So, I, I mean, I, I don't... If I were to make a list of those things, they would be very similar to the lists of Luther and Calvin, and especially Calvin, and especially Zwingli. I mean, you probably know that Cranmer spent time... Uh, Cranmer actually was married to the niece of Osiander, one of the reformers in Switzerland, and he spent time, I think, with Bucer. And so his, his views were, were sort of standard reformed. Now, again, and, and, and thank, okay, your question is drawing this out of me, and that's good. Um, they, he parted ways with those reformers in terms of his ecclesiology. See, I think it, it's really ecclesiology which makes Anglicanism Catholic and, and not Reformed. Uh, but, in, but, but aside from that, inside from, aside from the way that he viewed his views on liturgy and bishops um, and the historic episcopate, I think his views line up pretty closely with various of the Reformers. 
Did you have anything specific in mind? Oh, wait, 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 wait. Thank you. Um, from a Catholic perspective, uh, at least in general, in very yeah. vague and generic terms, yeah. uh, that particular change of a, the of a theological sphere is, is of a vital significance to how we understand the separation of our churches, uh, sure. of your church and mine. Um, and it seems to I me mean, that you're agreeing with that. Uh, but for us, yeah. that would go even so far as to affect the way in which uh, secession works, as I'm sure you know. Um, so it's, yeah. I'm, I'm quite struck by that, uh, in part because uh, I think that you emphasize this other as the other aspects of, of his, the value there to his work. But uh, for us, we would see some of that, uh, some of the doctrinal developments there as, as really being the, the significant cause of division for, yeah. from our perspective. Yeah. Um, I have a second question, if that's okay. Yeah. I, <laughs> no, it's totally fine. I just want to say, though, that you know, did, when, Brayton, when, when Pastor Brayton spoke, did he emphasize that Luther was, was excommunicated from the church? Yes. And, and, and he, he didn't want to leave. Now, after he left, he was a real pill. <laughs> he said as much, yes. But I often wonder, like, yeah, I mean, I, um, Father Nye, I totally get that those doctrinal divisions are big, big deals. I also wonder what could have happened had um, the powers that be... You know, Luther in many ways was a, just a, a typical late medieval monk. Sadly, he was a nominalist, um, in my view. But, but, I mean, he didn't really say anything that others hadn't said before him. Um, and so I wonder... So, so the doctrinal differences are huge. But gosh, I wonder what would have happened had, had the Catholic Church said, let's think about this for two years. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not convinced that those differences are worth uh, splitting the unity of the church over. And that's a very Anglican thing for me to say. What is your second question? Well, we're going we're gonna to pause on that. I'm going to interject and say, first of all, thank you, Father Knight, for not being here last week when I spoke. <laughs> praise, praise the Lord for that. Milo, you had a question? <laughs> uh, yes, I just wanted to thank you so much for your, your, um, your take on the English transformation. The one thing that I picked up that you were going to go back to as as my mother said, oh, yeah. I won't get into good, that good. Right now. Yeah, thank you. My mom, and I love her. She's wonderful. I, she led me to Christ. But she, her, one of her stock uh, quotations is, I don't care what the Bible means. I just want to know what it says. <laughs> and that just doesn't fly. I mean, like the Bible, it has to be interpreted. This is a book for grown-ups. So the question is, who's going to interpret it? And, yeah. First of all, I love the passivity between Father Nye and you. <laughs> which, you weren't sitting back here when you were speaking, when you, had the, when you had the little slide up about the heart of Rome and the mind of Calvin. Yeah. Or the body of Rome, the heart of Cal the heart of Luther, and the mind of Calvin. Think Father I'm and I leaned over and said, "The libido of Henry," and that wasn't quite. 
I thought he was going to get and, up and, and say I would that. come back and say, is that all bad? But I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying, that would have been a more interesting question. I, hey, I, let's go there. No, I don't want to go there. Okay. But, no, but I, no I, do, I do have a question. So you, you spoke a lot and, and, and eloquently about the, pragma, the, the pragmatic uh, 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 regime within the Anglican church. Yeah, particularly okay. Elizabeth. And, well, and what I mean by regime is the economy of it, the, the, the way in which you, you try to get the laity to participate um, yeah, I, I, in their yep. vocation. Mm -hmm. Good, good. And I, I don't know how to, how to word it, but my question is, as you were talking, I was thinking about the quote by Christ, if you'll know my children, by their, my people, by their fruits, right? How do you think that the Anglican church has done in producing piety and um, in, 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 in building the kingdom mm. as, a, as a result of the church? Because it had a, mm. had a good experiment to run mm. in England on its island. Mm. And then in the British Empire mm -hmm. overall. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> tell me, how do you think those reforms worked? <clears throat> Boy, that's a great question. I mean, th there's two things that immediately spring to mind just off the frontal lobe. One is this emphasis on holiness. Um, if you look at the thought of Richard Hooker, the thought of the Carolinian divines that sort of flood out of Richard Hooker, I'm thinking of people like Jeremy Taylor, uh, William Law, uh, a lot of a lot of hardcore reform people don't like them, but but they had a very strong emphasis on holiness. For example, William Law spends a lot of time talking about how we should meditate on our own death. Um, that's one of the traditional spiritual exercises that comes out of the monastery of of the Middle Ages, and again, that whole stream of holiness teaching leads in a straight line to John Wesley. Who, who studied under some of these people, and it leads to the charismatic movement. And I'm not giving a high five to every single aspect of, of any of this, but I do think that that emphasis on holiness has borne good fruit uh, in the history of the church. The second thing that comes to mind is, um, well, I actually I have three things. The, the second thing is very simply the missionary movements that came out of England. If you look at Africa today, you know, I'm in the Episcopal Church. My church is, is in a steep decline, as are all mainline denominations, and in fact, all denominations, even the Southern Baptists, even Charismatics, even the Catholic Church. If you, if you analyze the data correctly, we're, we're all sort of in decline right now. But in Nigeria... Um, there are baptismal services where 5,000 people are lining up and being baptized, and those are Anglican churches. Um, on, on any given Sunday in Nigeria, there's 25 million Anglicans in church. Similar things can be said for Kenya. By the way, these people are also, they have Muslims breathing down their necks, so these people are willing to put their life on the line for their faith. They're Anglicans. I think that that's also exhibit B, of good fruit that's come out of this church. Um, and the, the last thing I would say is, wow, I love to read Anglican writers, whether it's John Donne or George Herbert or other of the uh, metaphysical poets or C.S. Lewis, who, let me just say, he's one of us. <laughs> um, God, God bless that man. Or uh, John Stott, J.I. Packer, 
Uh, Rowan Williams is one of my all-time favorite theologians. I think that, um, that, that the intellectual legacy that comes out of Anglicanism is, is a real gift. And then there's also the Book of Common Prayer and the King James Bible. So <laughs> I, I could go on. Just, just those. I just want to say, for the record, the Bible Church, we, we have no data. So as you're declining, we, we don't know. So there you go. Congratulations. Yeah. All right. Quick question. Duly noted. Thank you so much. I think these last four weeks have been just outstanding. I have a question on Holy Eucharist. Do you know what the word Eucharist means? Yes, I do. Oh, what does it mean? Uh, It's the Lord's Supper. Okay, but in Greek, the word Eucharisto means I give thanks. So the word Eucharist means thanksgiving. Oh, you may have kind of answered the question I'm fixing to ask. (laughs) The Catholics believe in transubstantiation. Yes. They believe that during Holy Communion, the body actually become the bread actually becomes Christ's body, and and the wine becomes the blood of Christ. The Lutherans believe that Christ is literally at Communion, right, present. But the bread stays bread, and the wine stays wine. Yeah, and Catholics think that it stays bread and wine too, in its accidents. Well, it's a mystery. And it's complicated. And you've got to understand Aristotelian metaphysics to sort of understand it. It's a mystery. But the Reformation, keep, keep the Reformation you know, uh, when you were talking last week, you said that it was a memorial. You know, do this in remembrance yeah. of me. If I understand what you said, mm-hmm. during the Eucharist, it's both? Absolutely. In because fact, Catholics I, believe it's both. Because Catholics also believe that it is a memorial. Absolutely they believe that. They just think that it's more than that. Of course Catholics, look, e- e- there's even a moment in the Eucharistic prayer called the anamnesis. That's an, an old Greek word that means remembering. The thing is, you can talk about low views, low views of what's happened, what's going on with the elements, and high views. Are you with me so far? So far. It's important to understand that the high views include all the lower ones. Okay. So yeah, I think it's both. Okay, Doug. Does that now, does that both? I think it's all of the. I mean, look, are you asking me if I believe the, the church's view, or it, is Good. it according Good. to which? To the person who it's, receives. It's more the latter. So the in the Catholic, so so you, let me tell you one of the interesting things that the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, has in common with what I would call classical confessional Protestantism, and I'm thinking particularly of the Reformed tradition, also the Lutheran tradition, and and this very much comes out of the late Middle Ages. They both have this tendency to nail everything down and they're both doctrinally rigorous and and they actually mandate that that all of the faithful subscribe to this rigorous set of systematic doctrine guess what church doesn't do that it's a trick question (laughs) good guess I was thinking of the Eastern Orthodox Church you can talk to Eastern Orthodox priests and say, hey, do you believe in purgatory? Most of them will probably say yes, but some of them will probably say no. They don't have to. 
you could ask them, do you believe in the assumption of Mary? Some of them will say yes, some of them will say no. You could say, do you believe in transubstantiation? Some will say yes, some will say no. My church is kind of like that. There are priests who believe in transubstantiation. I'm one of them. But there's, my rector, David Luckenbach, does not believe in that for one second. He thinks I'm crazy. So it, it's, it's really, it's more up to each person. And that's good and bad. You're welcome. Matt, can you, can you do one more question? Of course. Okay, one more. Well, not if it's from Daniel. <laughs> All right. Does the Anglican understanding of apostolic succession require a continued acceptance of the divine right of kings? No. Okay. In fact, no way. No. Go on then. Well, in fact, so, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of surprised more people didn't, like, give me, like, bust my chops about the whole the king is the supreme head of the church thing. One of my favorite quotes from John Knox, now I'm going to give a high five to my Presbyterian brothers and sisters. He said that the, that the, that the, he said that the, he hated Elizabeth, by the way. He didn't believe in, he didn't think a female could be a monarch. Don't tell my daughters that, but anyway. Um, John Knox said that the Church of England has the, is plastered or stamped with the face of the queen. But my church, the Scottish Kirk, is stamped only with the face of Christ. And I think that there's something really cool about that. Um, but you're not, you're not even asking me about that. You're just talking about the divine right of kings. That's like a very narrow question. No way. Um, but but, but the, the Oxford movement, the Anglo-Catholic movement by John Henry Newman, who became a Catholic cardinal, but also others like Pusey and Kib, uh, Keeble, there, there was a movement in the history of Anglicanism that very much wanted to separate the church from the state. They wanted to go back to a more medieval view where the kingdom of God sort of operates with two swords that, are, that they are unified and connected, but there's still a distinction between them. But divine right of kings, no way. That's totally ir irrelevant to apostolic succession. So two different is, things completely. So what is the current role of the English monarch in the Anglican church? Well, in my church, nothing. N no role at all. In the Church of England, uh, the monarch actually does select the next Archbishop of Canterbury. So, I, gosh, one thing I... See, I wasn't... Look, that's a good question. By the way, what, I didn't, there's, there's many things that I did not do today. One of the things that I did not do today was try to give you some introduction to Anglicanism. Rather, I talked about the Reformation. If I were to give you an introduction to Anglicanism, I could have talked about the, Anglic the worldwide Anglican communion, and I would have talked about the five instruments of communion or the things that bind global Anglicans together in one communion. So, such that I'm in the same church as, as a Nigerian priest. Like literally I could celebrate Eucharist at his altar and vice versa. One of those five instruments of communion is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now the Archbishop of Canterbury is not a, is not, does not function like the Pope for us. The, those five instruments of communion together kind of do serve like the Pope for us. But then you could ask, well, how are they working? And that's a different question. But, but one of the things to answer your question that the monarch does today is, is she selects the, the next Archbishop of Canterbury. I think that, they have, that he has to be like ratified by all the bishops or whatever, but she does do that. I think that's about it. 
Oh, by the way, did y'all know that when, the, that when Queen Elizabeth is in England, she is Anglican, but then when she goes to her other land where she's a ruler, Scotland, she's Presbyterian? Did you know that? It's true. It's, it's totally true. Interesting. I know a lot of people like that, by the way. I, I, look, you can, take the boy, you can take the boy out of Presbyterianism. You can't take the Presbyterianism completely out of the boy. Amen. Right on. Hey, this has been amazing for, for not just because of what you did, but, but Father Nye said y'all. That was pretty cool. He said y'all. I love that. Hey, this has been absolute thrill and delight. We will continue this next Thursday evening. Blaine Davis. Is Blaine still here? Blaine will be speaking with us and leading us in a, I assume and trust, in an excellent talk. Matt, thank you. This you has been uh, an absolute wonder to, just to be here. So thank you. I'm going to presume upon you, if you don't mind, would you lead us in a closing prayer? And then upon that conclusion, we will be dismissed. And sure. my good Lutheran friends will be ready to hand out some brochures and flyers to remind you of uh, Oktoberfest on the 28th. Yeah, you can. Easy now. Easy. Wait your turn. All right, on. Easy there, Martinet. Okay, Matt, would you close us? And now for a third prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this night. Uh, thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for Tyler, Texas. It's weird to me in a lot of ways because the Bible belt. But wow, thanks be to God for all of the Christians in this place. Thank you that um, we love you. We worship your son, Jesus. We love the Holy Scriptures. Thank you for this church, Bethel Bible Church. Thank you that Eric Barton is a man who preaches the gospel boldly and with love. Thank you. Thank you for uh, a little opportunity to broadcast to a watching world that, yeah, we are divided and we don't like it, but, but we are also one. If we weren't one, we wouldn't be together right now. Uh, I pray for this city. I pray for your churches. Thank you for these people here. Uh, be with us now as we go home to wherever we're going. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.